HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Forever Cheese, masters of the Mediterranean. For more information, visit forevercheese.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network. This is Greg Blaze, your host. And on the line, I'd like to welcome Matt Riley, cheesemonger extraordinaire and winner of the Cheesemonger Invitational in 2015 as my guest co-host for the day. How are you, Matt? How you doing? Pretty good, Greg. How you doing? Oh, you know, I'm here in New York. It's, uh, you know, Matt and I used to work together a long time ago. Now the only time I really can talk to him is on this radio show. So uh, it's <laughs> nice to talk to you, Matt. Really nice. Good talking. <laughs> um, on today's episode, we're talking with student judge at the recent World Championship Cheese Competition in Madison, Wisconsin, and current senior at South Dakota State University, majoring in dairy production and animal science, Kaylee Wagner. How are you, Kaylee? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It's great to meet you over the phone. It's very personal. You know what I mean? It's really, it's really good stuff. Thanks so much for coming on tonight. Nice to meet you, yeah. Kaylee. <laughs> so I wanted to, um, in the first segment, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, uh, Kaylee, about the World Championship Cheese Competition and how you came to be a judge. Uh, there seem to be dairy scientists and experts in the field from all over the world. And I have to say, I was really impressed to see a college student in the mix with all these very experienced pros. We did an episode a couple months ago with uh, David Grotenstein all about judging, judging cheese competitions. I myself was judged at the American Cheese Society's annual competition a couple times. Matt, I think you're judging this year, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll be judging uh, this year at the uh, the Ohio at the uh, Iowa show. Pretty sweet. Uh, so I wanted to know, Kaylee, how did you get such a sweet gig? Well, I started out. Um, I was a student judge on our dairy products judging team at SDSU, and participated in the national collegiate contest back this fall. And I placed first in the cheddar cheese judging contest. So of all the student judges. In the nation, I am the best at judging cheddar cheese. Pretty sweet. And, yeah, so as a result of winning that collegiate contest, I was invited to be the student judge this past week at the, the national or the world championship contest. So it was a pretty neat experience 
That's pretty awesome. So that's kind of like when they uh, when they take that one college player to play with the pros in the Olympics, right? It's like you were like you're you're the one up there. That's that's pretty sweet. You also placed second in ice cream judging. Is, is that correct? I really I want I want to be an ice cream judge like really badly somehow. I really do. <laughs> so um, and I wanted to know um, you know what does that mean? Like what is the collegiate dairy products evaluation contest like? What is that all about? I know a little bit about it, but maybe you could explain to our viewers, our listeners what that's all about. Yep. So in our contest, we judge six products, um, cheddar cheese, vanilla ice cream, milk, strawberry yogurt. Um, did I say cottage cheese? Nope. And then... Um, Drawing a blank on that sixth one. Um, <laughs> but so we have the, the six products that we judge, um, and then they place us, they have the official judge, and then our placings. And whoever judges most similarly to the official judge would be considered the best in that product. And so I just, I have similar taste buds to the official judges for those, those but there are those specific things that you look for. Um, in each product, kind of the different flavor profiles and what makes it a good product versus a not-so-good product. You know, I, I actually have a question about, about the ice cream specifically. I, I consider myself a, uh, a judge of ice cream almost every night. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd love to know what your criteria is of, uh, of how, how you technically judge an ice cream because uh, I think that's super interesting. Yep, so judging ice cream is kind of a, a process. Um, when you first test it, you're really looking for the, the body and texture of the ice cream. You don't want it to be gummy and kind of sticky in your mouth. And as the name implies, it's ice cream, but you also don't want it to be too icy. If you're crunching on a lot of ice crystals, that's not good either. So you want it to be a nice, smooth, creamy texture. And then you look at the flavor you want it to be a good vanilla, creamy taste. If it's really, you can tell when they use a lot of corn syrup or kind of syrupy flavoring in it. You don't want that. You want it to be well balanced and just really smooth on what, the tongue. What is what is uh, using something like corn syrup? Like what? How would that affect uh, you know the texture, the flavor, uh, and, and and to the extent that you would be able to pick up on it. It would mostly affect the flavor. It just, it's a very, if you think about when you go to the grocery store and you get the cheapest vanilla ice cream, something you would yeah. serve at your kid's birthday party. Yeah, it just tastes like um, sugar, basically. It's, yeah, very sweet. Yeah, very sweet. Right on. That super. Like, that contest itself is, a, it's a team contest, right? Like, it, like the, you, the SD State team was the one you won as a team i'm just uh confused like how do you you how do you go about doing that like do you do you compete with with each other or it's a little bit of a two-part process everybody judges the samples individually and you have your three members per team so everybody gets scored individually and then to figure out which team placed the best, they just average out. Sure, and they scores. and they choose those six products uh, because they give you that. Are the, those are there's the same six products in every competition. Correct. And it, there, I think it was, you said strawberry yogurt, right? Was that the 
Was that the one that you blinked on, or that was the one I, I totally remembered? Do they, they choose those products for you specifically because you can taste certain things in the dairy through those? They're like the control for what makes a, makes a good dairy product, I guess? Yeah, well, since there are so many different types of yogurt and ice cream and cheese, oh, butter, that was the six and I blanked on. Yeah, butter. <laughs> um, but since there's so many different varieties of that sort of product, they standardize it just to those specific ones, um, whereas with, you know, butter or milk, they they want to keep it so that it's it's a pretty standard product that you're judging and looking for those same flavor profiles sure and when you're um when you're judging a cheese so you placed first in the cheddar judging what are you looking for and how does your skills or your your you know your education as a dairy scientist play into that with cheddar cheese just like when you're judging your um, ice cream you look at the body and texture and the appearance of it as well as the flavor and so when you're testing a, a cheese mostly you're just looking for what defects are present in there. Uh, It's kind of, it's a little bit of a negative sort of thing to do when you're judging because you're looking for what's wrong with the product, essentially. Uh, And so with a a cheddar cheese, you would look for the lack of bitterness. You wouldn't want it to be bitter. Um, Nothing with too high of acid. You would look for that. Um, And overall, something that just tastes really clean and doesn't leave a, a funky taste in your mouth afterwards. Those are kind of the three, I think, obvious defects that you find in cheddar cheese and something that you would, those three are the most often seen. Those are the often seen. You're, yeah, because you're in, Maddie, you'll know this when you go in. You, you're the technical yeah. judge, um, Kaylee, and Matt, you'll yeah. be the aesthetic judge. The aesthetic judges, do you work in, in uh, judging uh, pairs there like they do in the ACS, or is it just you... Because at the ACS, you know, the aesthetic judge, which I was, I say all the good things about the cheese. And then, I, and then the, the, dairy, the dairy scientist um, always cuts down, cuts down on the score. Did you have a partner like that in the judging? Kaylee? As for, did I have a partner? Yeah. I mean you- that? Oh, no. That, for our contest, it's, um, they, they keep it to that specific looking for the defects um, and not quite so much. Oh, this one's really, really good. Like you, right. Yeah. That's a hard So you're, you're basically working um, on your own, making your, making your judgments, and then when everything comes together, that's how the scores are tallied, and it's, you know, it's more of an individual thing. Correct. Okay, I understand. You know, actually, uh, while we're talking about cheddar for a second, I'm I'm really curious. Is there some criteria you'd use? Obviously, when you were um, a student judge, you were you were judging. You know, basically, it looks like you know block cheddar. When you go to judge something like a say a cloth bound cheddar, are you looking for for different criteria, or is it basically the same? Uh, you know, I I would approach the two differently, but I'm sure with your training, you you know, you have a, a you know some different perspective on that. Right. So my training as a student judge and what I do is solely cheddar. And then I go to the contest this past week, and they have hundreds of categories from blue cheese to cheddar cheese to you name it. Uh, And the biggest thing that I learned out of that is that when you do look at those different cheeses, it's 
it's, it's essentially looking for those same things, the bitter and the acid, um, and then just kind of tailoring that to the specific style. Of yeah, cheese. you had seven categories of cheddar alone in that, con- yeah. in right. that contest. You got cheddar mild, cheddar medium, cheddar sharp, cheddar aged, one or two, two or longer, and then two bandaged cheddars. That's a lot. That's a lot of cheese, my friend. Were you, uh, <laughs> were you intimidated by that in the beginning? Um, my, so my job at the contest was unique. Um, I didn't just judge, you know, the one class of cheddar. I got to go to all of the different, um, the tables where the official judges were doing their thing, judging the cheeses. And I got to be there to experience it all and learn from the experts. Um, That's fantastic. It was, yeah. That's- kind of awestruck to see all these people who are really experts in cheese. And here I am, just a student judge, but... Uh, you're an expert too. I mean, you're a dairy scientist, my friend. You're going. You're going to be. You're going to be right up there with them. Did you envision yourself or, um, doing that in the future? Was that something you really wanted to do? Oh yeah, the cheese industry has some really awesome people, and it's it's a unique place to be. And I definitely definitely enjoy being there with them. Yeah, the cheese people are great. You know what's what's interesting um, about. Uh, when I was was reading up on you, and what's interesting about dairy scientists, I, and Matt, I think maybe you could you could back me up on this, is that most yeah. of us cheesemongers aren't dairy scientists. I know very no. few cheesemongers who are dairy scientists. Yet we handle like we handle all of the all of the cheese. Like, what do you want to do? I guess um, with your well, no, I'll ask you that later. Um, but <laughs> but. It's it just, it's no, just. But I, I get what you're saying, Greg. It's like you know, we start off and and uh, we 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 need to be experts on some level, but then there's like a whole other level of science behind it that you know when you can get exposed to that kind of education, like you, you have like a, a wealth of knowledge that you know I think a lot of cheesemongers just wish they could have. You know, one hundred percent. So. What kind of cheeses did you find in the competition? Uh, did you I mean, you saw everything from soup to nuts, right? Processed cheese. It seems like there's a ton of Alpine or a ton of Swiss entries in uh, in the in the World uh, Cheese Awards. Is that is that true? There were in those classes quite a few, um, and of course Swiss. That's um, a pretty popular type of cheese. But I'd say everything from the Swiss and Alpine to string cheese. Processed cheese, um, goat and sheep milk cheeses, just things that you wouldn't, at first you wouldn't think of seeing at a, a cheese contest, but then they show up with string cheese and... Cheese with stuff is. in it. How do you judge string cheese? <laughs> yeah. How does, how does that work? Um, like, yeah, how do you apply your scientific knowledge to, like, a pot of processed cheese that has, like, mangoes in it or something like that? Like, what do you do with that? Like, how do, you, how do, you, how do they make an accurate judgment on that? You know what I mean? Like, what's, that, that seems to be super difficult to me. Although, I mean, you did it with the strawberry, uh, with the strawberry yogurt, but, you know. I mean, how, how, many, how, how do you get that done, I wonder? Yeah, that that was what I was wondering, too, because, you know, I'm used to judging just straight cheese. But the thing with that, you got to judge it as a cheese first, and then any of those funky flavors and things that they throw in there should complement the cheese itself. So when you're eating, like, a Monterey Jack, you want to you wanna taste the Monterey Jack. But when you throw in 
jalapenos there and you make a, a really hot pepper jack, you still want to taste that cheese flavor and don't be overpowered by those jalapenos. Yeah, completely. And as a man who had to judge those flavored cheeses, after like four of those like jalapeno cheeses, I was <laughs> I was pretty much done. Like I, there was yeah. nothing else I could taste for the day. Um, something that's cool about this uh, about this competition is a Wisconsin cheese won this year from a record two thousand nine hundred and fifty five entries. That is just a whopping amount of cheese. Um, and this is the first time a U.S. cheese has won Best in Show in this contest in almost thirty years. So that is really awesome for the state of Wisconsin and uh, for the United States in general. Um, and the winner was Emmy Roth's USA Grand Cru Sirchois, which is a great cheese. Um, um, so, Kaylee, what about that cheese made it the best? I assume that you got to taste that afterwards. What did uh, What did you think of that cheese? Overall, that cheese was just a very good, well-balanced flavor, um, some different interesting notes in it, kind of an earthy flavor, but it was still smooth and just a really well-balanced cheese. Maddie, do you carry that out there? Grand Sorchois, no, I haven't. I haven't brought it in. The 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 thing is, I I've seen it around a lot, so I you know I I I, I think that you know people can get their hands on it, and it's a, it's a great cheese. But I, I do I, I really I really like that cheese. I remember tasting it with you when we were up at uh, up at Roth. Yeah, absolutely. Alpine cheeses are, and I was discussing this last week. Um, I had an Alpine uh, cheese maven on Kaylee, this really cool lady who. Uh, um, it was practicing um, transhumance, you know, bringing the animals up uh, up the mountain um, to graze in the pastures in the summer and then making the cheese, bringing the cheese back down. And we were discussing there's just so many alpine cheeses um, that are out there. And, uh, Matt, you know that because you oh, know, yeah. I force you to sell. We sell about 100, 100 varieties of them. We have, we have so many, and, and that's, the, uh, that's actually kind of the struggle sometimes because the cheesemaker will bring – you know, a fantastic Alpine-style cheese. And, you know, when it gets, we have a large counter. We've got probably, you know, six or seven Alpine cheeses right now of a similar age. And, and it's like trying to decide, like, wow, well, I would love to carry a cheese. It's excellent. I just don't know if I'll be able to move it, move it considering I have so many others like this, you know, already in my rotation. So it's almost like backing it up, you know, like I'll, 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 I'll use, you know, try to buy that one in a say, uh, a month or so or a couple of months, just kind of rotate it in and rotate it out so you get a little bit of circulation in, in the styles, you know. Totally. Uh, Kaylee, yeah. do you like Alpine cheese? Did you taste a lot of them at the show? I I did stay at that that class for a little bit longer than some of the others, but with those, they're just, each one has something unique and different, and I think that's what makes them so enjoyable is you kind of never know what you're going to get. But from a scientist's perspective, why is that cheese so toothsome and wonderful? Like what about the dairy? What What is brought out in the dairy through that style of cheese making that makes it so amazing? The location of where it's made. I think, you know, when you go... The terroir of that of the milk comes through best or, or really well in those cheeses, you think? Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? I mean, wh- what about the cheese making process, or the, or what about the, this, the, what about that makes it that way? Do you think? I think with alpine style cheeses, they're typically more when they're made, they get more individual attention than something that you're kind of mass producing someplace, and the cheesemaker is really that it's that artisan touch. I think they just 
each cheesemaker knows what they're doing, and they have their own style. And I think that's really brought out in the cheese is that, that personalization from the cheesemaker. And even as a as a person who studies the science of the milk and the microbes and and all of that goes into it, it's great that you still um, you still believe that a little love can make the cheese a little better. I like that. I like to hear that. That's good stuff. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, I, I have a question about about that specifically. We, we talked about terroir for a second, and you know, I um, you know personally, I've always been under kind of an assumption that you know if we're going to talk about terroir, we we should be discussing, you know, raw milk and the raw milk use in cheese. And, and uh, you know, Kaylee, I'm really curious what your perspective on, um, you know, what kind of terroir can be expressed through a cheese that's made from pasteurized milk and um, whether you think that that that's has any question. effect at all. You know, I think if you start with a good quality milk that you can make a good quality cheese out of it, um, regardless of whether it's pasteurized or raw. Um, I do I do go tend to lean more towards pasteurized um, because you just you don't really know for sure what kind of things you're going to get, especially if you're producing that cheese on farm right next to the animals. Um, you, you can never be too careful with that. I think it does has some effect on the flavor, um, but in the end, starting with a, a quality milk ends with good quality cheese. Okay. And then in terms of, like, let's say, you know, the treatment of the milk, um, you know, I suppose if it was raw, this is the assumption that I've always gone under, and I may be, I may be wrong, but, like, if, if it has, you know, any of the esters that are still in existence in the, in the fats, you know, from the, from the diet of the animal... Um, I, I've always thought that a lot of that gets compromised when you when you heat the milk over a certain temperature. Um, but uh, again, not not being an expert in the scientific side of it, I, I'd be curious what your perspective on that is. You know. Well, one of the defects that we kind of will often get in a, a cheese can be feed or um, just kind of that animaly. Flavor, <laughs> with lack of a better term. Barnyardy. Yeah, a little, little unclean. Um, yeah. But some of that can come through in a in a raw milk when you have those those aromas. Gotcha. Like the animal gets into a patch of onions or something like that, or uh, you know, are we talking about like this kind of kind of level stuff, or like silage? Yeah, you know, similar, feed, yeah, similar having, to the, the silage or. Get sure, what they sure. eat. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's very interesting. What do you think? Um, just to just to close that out, because so so you like you like pasteurization um, as a dairy scientist because it makes the milk safe is what you're saying. Um, it, it, it it brings the variables down. But if you flash pasteurize stuff, you take out all the flavor. So do you believe that, you know, like thermizing or just like letting the milk temperature just kiss that, that pasteurization point and then pulling it off, does that make, the, does that make it safe enough for you? Or if it's a, just the, the high temperature with the short, like short a, time at that high temp? Yeah, exactly. Yep. So as long as it's as long as it's there for um, eight to ten seconds, then um, you know to to kill all of the undesirable bacteria and microbes. As long as it's hot enough, um, just that short 
period of time is good. Totally. We, I mean, we've been talking a lot on, on the show, and, and, and Matt, and just a lot as cheesemongers. You know, we really work hard to defend our our raw milk cheeses. You know, oh yeah, uh, and and we we love we we love the the raw milk cheese. You know, what I mean, and, and we love the expression of the terroir through that and the processes. And I think you know a lot of cheesemakers I talk to find that you know as long as they're clean and they know where their milk comes through, the, where where their milk comes from, and, and they're in compliance. You know that the cheese they make is super safe. I mean, what do you, what's your opinion on, you know, on, I, I've always assumed that pasteurized milk could be very dangerous because it's lost the ability to defend itself from, from other, you know, from other bacteria and antibodies. What do you, what's your take on that? As a, also being in the animal husbandry realm of things and my studies, I think it all goes back to the care of the animals and the environment that they are housed in. And any milk, whether it's pasteurized or raw, should be coming from a source that the cows are cared for and that the milk that they give is just naturally low in bacteria because they're low stress in a clean yeah, environment. Yeah, they've got a good life. They're happy cows, right? I mean, they're happy, happy sheep yeah. or goats, right? But specifically, does the pr- process of pasteurization sometimes make the milk easier to contaminate? Mm, I think that the pasteurization versus the raw milk, they're both susceptible to being contaminated. I don't, I don't know if I would say that pasteurizing it makes it more susceptible to being contaminated. Yeah, you know the other the, one of the other things that I've uh, I've I've heard from cheesemakers is that they'll they'll actually move to pasteurization when they're doing some some changes at their dairy um, because they believe that it it's a more consistent basis to start from. Um, so you know, well known raw milk producing uh, raw milk cheese producing. Uh, creameries will will switch over to pasteurization when there's going to be a lot of changes going on, or if they have to, you know, start producing in a different like location or something, and they'll they'll move to that just for levels of consistency. Um, mm-hmm. You know, d- did you d- do you have any feedback on that in terms of you know your experience with making cheese? I would say that when you change something in an animal's environment and it does affect the the stress level on them, it can cause bacteria to increase in their milk. So that being said, um, when you add the cultures and the other bacteria to the milk to produce the cheese, if those levels naturally occurring in the milk are different or shifted, it can affect your final product and how those microbes interact with each other. So I think um, along those lines of what you're saying, that from an animal husbandry and the cheese making standpoint makes a lot of sense 
Interesting. That's totally. Cool. Kaylee, man, that's awesome. You're a great reference for that. Um, I hope you had yeah, – we, we, we are – I talked to a lot of cheesemongers, a lot of cheesemakers, but um, not, enough, uh, not enough scientists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted uh, you know, to give a shout-out to a lot of American winners. A lot of people placed uh, – looks like um, in the open class uh, for hard cheese, Upland's Extra Age did really well. Harbison won the open soft. Um, and then uh, Marin French Cheese also placed pretty well with their Petite Supreme. Tarantes came in uh, fifth in the open class for Alpine. Winamere first in the Smear Ripen. A lot of good cheese being made in the United States, man, and uh, it was really interesting to take a look at all the results of that competition. Um, so we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to grill you some more about your future, Kaylee. So I hope you're ready. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Today's program was brought to you by Forever Cheese, masters of the Mediterranean. Forever Cheese is dedicated to sourcing the absolute best and most authentic products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. They started out with just one cheese, then four, and never knew that they would have the breadth of product and the richness of working with so many fantastic producers across the Mediterranean. Michelle Buster and Pierluigi Cini have the singular vision to be the best they could be and bring products never before seen to the U.S. They were sure that with education and sampling, there was a market for such a myriad of handcrafted traditional and non-cheeses and specialty foods. Pierluigi comes from a family of cheesemakers, and after teaching Michelle all he knew, together they set out one day at a time to make a difference not only in their country, but in the lives of each of their producers. For more information, visit forevercheese.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Herd. I want to be a master of the Mediterranean. I wonder how you get that. That would be, be pretty awesome. That's a great title. Um, I think you already are a master. <laughs> so before the break, uh, my, my co-host Matt and I were talking with uh, Kaylee Wagner, a senior at South Dakota State, who's currently wrapping up her major in dairy production and animal science. I'd like to talk to you a bit more, Kaylee, about your majors. Um, you know, I was saying before, on the retail end of things, you have people from all sorts of backgrounds, the arts, finance, former chefs. Uh, criminals, um, and we all support the cheese from a certain perspective. We want to sell it and talk about it. We want to support the values behind the cheese, whether that be sustainable production methods or animal welfare or traditional production methods. Um, but we come to dairy in a different way. So I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about how you came to study dairy from your side, the science-based and production side of things. How did you do what you do? For me, it was a pretty easy choice. I grew up on a dairy farm in well, southern Minnesota. Sense. So I've always been around cows and the production side of things. So going to school for dairy science, um, it was something close to my heart and something that I'm very passionate about. Um, so I came into school studying dairy production and animal science, more so on the um, the animal handling side of things, how to feed them and take care of them so that they can produce a quality product for us. What's your favorite course in the, in the program? You know, I've taken pretty much every course, and I think my favorite still has to be the introduction 
course that I took back when I was a freshman because it gave a really good overview of everything involved in the dairy industry from the farm all the way to the final product of cheese or milk or whatever it is. What does your milk go to from your family farm? And how long um, how long have your folks been dairy farmers? And was it your granddad and your grandma's? Uh, I mean, your granddad and your and then your your dad as well. Yep. So our family started farming back with my grandfather um, back in the twenties, nineteen twenties, um, and it's been going through my grandfather and now my dad. Or um, it's it's really still a family operation, and we ship to a local creamery. So our milk gets turned into um, the little the little milk cartons that go to school is what that creamery mostly does, but they also do some cheese as well. That's awesome. What do you I, know who makes your cheese? What was that? Kaylee, do you know who makes the cheese that you uh, that your oh, uh, family farm milk goes to? Yep, Hastings Creamery. It's a, a cooperative close to southeast Minnesota. Neat. What do you what do you want to do when you complete your program? What sort of job are you looking to get, and what where, where do dairy scientists usually end up? Right now, I'm looking into um, you know with my background in judging and the science aspect, um, product grading. So basically, products judging um, for a plant once they they have their product made, grading it to see kind of what quality it is. Um, Looking into that right now. Long term, though, I want to do something that incorporates both the the manufacturing side of producing a product, as well as how we handle the animals on the farm and how that affects the quality of milk going into those products. Do you want to make cheese? You know, I haven't ruled it out. I met a lot of great cheesemakers in the past week, and they seem to have a lot of fun doing what they do. Yeah, the cheesemakers are awesome people. I really, I really think they're some of the, they're some of the best people out there. They have this really interesting perspective, um, and they're this really great fulcrum between the animals and you know and the cheesemongers, or just the people who consume the cheese. You know what I mean? Like they have this really neat perspective on on life. I really feel like, and they're they're jolly. Hey, <laughs> Kaylee, I wanted to ask you a question about. I, I'm sure you've gotten around. You you obviously met a lot of cheesemakers, uh, you know, uh, certainly recently. But uh, you've gotten around to some farms, I can assume. Um, and with your concern for uh, you know animal welfare and, and how animals are treated, are there any uh, interesting uh, like techniques that you've seen people using to um, you know to, to treat their animals better, to, to give them uh, you know a more happy existence? You know. I, I'm thinking in my own mind. I know, Greg, you've mentioned on the show before with Mariki. Um, oh, yeah, they got a massage parlor he, going in there. You know, has, yeah, the machine that massages the animals, and when they come up, they can get a good back rub. And, and I was curious, Kaylee, have you seen anything, you know, along these lines where people are, farmers are trying to reach out to their animals to try to make them more comfortable and, and have a happier time? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, obviously taking care of the animals gets you a good product. So definitely those... The back scratcher, massager, kind of a roller brush. The cows just love to go up to it and rub up against it and get a good back scratch. Um, Kind of in the the southern regions, more so of the U.S., um, they have a lot of, like, sprinkler systems to keep the cows cool when it gets really hot. Um, Of course. So all kinds of innovations that really come back to keeping the cows happy. 
I need a sprinkler system sometime. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the front, in the front yard. With I, the pool, the one on to follow me around. I need a back roller and a sprinkler system. I think that's <laughs> I know, the cops got it made. Sometimes I wish I could just go in there with them and hang out for a while. Yeah, that's not a bad it, life, you know. Is there is there any any like uh, any evidence linking you know that kind of treatment of animals to a better product? I mean, obviously, keeping animals cooler is a very practical, you know, issue, which would which you know kind of makes obvious sense to me. But you know, if an animal has a back scratcher, are they making better cheese? I don't know of any you know specific research off the top of my head, but studies have shown that cows under less environmental stress and that who are, you know, more calm, the levels okay. of stress um, in those hormones that are activated in their bodies because of it, um, stress has a negative impact on milk production and milk quality. So it makes sense that those have a pot, you know, those um, scratchers and sprinklers have a positive impact on the, what they produce. What, what does it do to the milk? What does stress do to the milk? Imagine it makes Not it thin. Not necessarily the milk itself um, directly. So when an animal is stressed, just like humans, they release cortisol into their system. And that causes the milk to not be released um, oh. quite as easily. And when they have the milk sitting in their udder, not wanting to come out, it can build up more bacteria within it. And so that okay. can cause an infection in the cow's udder and increase the bacteria in the milk, which when it comes to making cheese, if you have too much bacteria that's negatively affecting your cultures, you can end up with bad cheese or no cheese. That's that's amazing, actually. And to follow up on that, you know, I hear and we've discussed on the show um, that water buffalo are especially temperamental in terms of how and they give out milk is that um do they produce a larger amount of that of that substance um and then and the milk just just sort of gestates inside of them or have you ever heard that um we here in south dakota do more study on, on cows than on water buffalo so i couldn't really comment on that specifically Makes sense, though, or it makes sense to yeah. me. In my, I mean, that, that's yeah. that's interesting. So you want them to be nice and mellow and relaxed, so they give up the milk. You know what I mean? You want them to be to be in good shape. That seems that's also um, an old butcher's uh, thing where they talk. You know that the lambs have to be you know nice and you know nice and calm before you go up and slaughter them, or else they ruin all of their meat, which um, which I've heard. Um, so yeah. good to keep those animals calm. Um, I have another question for you. Is there any interdisciplinary approach to studying dairy in your major? Do you talk beyond the science to like bigger issues affecting the dairy or even the cheese industry today? We definitely do touch on, you know, the public perception of animal agriculture. It's a big thing in our, our world today. People want to know where their food is coming from and how those animals are being treated. And so we definitely talk about the best ways to to communicate with people how we're how we're handling our animals and to show them that they are in a a caring environment where they're being cared for and their well being is looked out for. 
Was that ever a problem? I mean, in the dairy industry, really? Uh, I mean, no, the beef cattle are just packed in there, and there's like a really just horrible environment in those big feedlots and stockyards. But was that, in your opinion, a huge problem in dairy? You know, before people got wise to where their stuff's coming from. In both the dairy and as well as in the beef industry, um, animals have always been cared for um, by the farmers because if if you think about it, the animal is the producer, it's their livelihood. Those animals, if you take care of them, they will essentially take care of you by producing a good product. And so in all livestock, whether it's dairy, beef, poultry, um, what they show in the media sometimes is, you know, one or two examples of poor animal husbandry, and that gives everybody in the industry a bad rap when in actuality it's a very slim, very small number of people that, you know, you get those those images of animals packed in there and dirty, cramped environments. Um isn't it amazing how the mainstream media just manipulates us like that, just to believe that that kind of stuff? I mean, that's 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 sad. I mean, I was under the impression that that's that that's how a, a lot of Americans were getting their Me too. were getting their meats, and and um, you know that it was coming a lot from from uh, feedlots and, and things like this. And I, you know, it's it's kind of nice to hear you say, Kaylee, that that's you know very much the minority, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's something that I get a little bit fired up about because being on the the agriculture side, I've seen hundreds of thousands of really good examples of how things are done and when those one or two bad stories get out there, I know that's not what it's really about, but for people who don't really get on the farm, that's and that's what they see, it's it's really sad for us in the industry. Do, do you think that there's any that that like maybe herd size or anything like that has any impact at all? I mean, you know, my you know just kind of thinking about it, I'm like, you know, if, if it was a smaller herd, it's easier to manage. If it's a larger herd, maybe there's maybe there's animals, you know, kind of you know, kind of missing the boat on all the all the all the wonderful uh, treatment that some of the smaller herds get. It, or is it you know, it doesn't really not matter in terms of herd size. I mean, do you have any impression? In your, in your, you know, from your perspective on that, no, I have seen it done well in all aspects of size. Um, on our home farm, we milk about fifty animals, and each each cow gets cared for just as well as on a, a thousand or two thousand cow dairy. Um, you know, with the technology that we have, you can have so many different records on each individual animal. Um, that you can know exactly what their health status is and how much milk they're producing. Um, technology has really been a, a driving factor in being able to increase herd size effectively and still care for each animal as if it was only caring for 50. Nice. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah, it really is. It's really good to talk to you because I'm like a, I'm a Luddite and a cynic in a lot of ways. So, you know, I, I just naturally fight against these things and I have this idea in my mind that I that I have to preserve things the way they were and the old ways that things were and um, and it's good to know that I'm kind of full of shit sometimes I really like to hear that <laughs> well I felt the same way I mean I, I really felt in the same in the same boat as you Greg you know I mean it's uh, you don't have to take a, a different look at, at uh, you know at 
at herd size being a factor, and, and just you know, be more practical about how uh, you know how I judge these things. You know? Totally. Hey, so, Kaylee, I got one more question for you. Uh, what advice do you have for anyone who's going to go and study uh, dairy science? It is a really great industry all around to get into, and as long as you have a passion for what you're doing, whether it's the animals or the cheese, um, stick with that passion, and it'll get you a long way in life. Hell yeah. Amen to that. Well, I want to say thanks um, to Matt um, for uh, giving me a little bit of his time. I know you're busy out there in Chicago, and a really big thank you to you, Kaylee, for coming on. Kaylee Wegner. Thanks a lot, man. You really enlightened me on a bunch of topics today. Um, Stay tuned and Cutting the Curd. We'll be back next week with more good, cheesy stuff. Take care. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.